to Zocalo, a cultural forum for the new L.A. Zocalo, which means public square in Spanish, is a nonpartisan, multi-ethnic forum providing an opportunity for intellectual fellowship in Southern California. Tonight on Zocalo. Is democracy in America even possible? Eric Alterman, prolific author, media critic, and columnist for The Nation magazine, explores the emergence of what he calls America's pseudo-democracy. Considered one of the most incisive media critics, Alterman is a senior fellow at both the Center for American Progress and at the World Policy Institute, and is a staff writer for the web-based research center Media Matters for America. He is also a professor of English at Brooklyn College. Alterman is the author of a number of books, including When Presidents Lie, A History of Official Deception and Its Consequences, The Book on Bush, How George W. Misleads America, and What Liberal Media. Recorded before a live audience at the National Center for the Preservation of Democracy as part of the Zocalo Public Square Lecture Series, here is Eric Alterman. Thanks, everybody, for coming. It's really nice to be here. So, let's get to work. If you go back to read the writings of the founders of the country, you'll find almost no one in that time and place who thought that democracy was possible for common men and women. It was an outrageously radical notion in the 18th century on this continent. John Adams, who was representative, I think, believed the people to be, quote, ignorant, strongly prejudiced, vindictive in their resentments, incapable of being influenced except by their fears of punishment. James Madison, who's kind of the most important thinker of the founding organizational structure of this country, and also something of a liberal compared to Adams, simultaneously reinforced and moderated Adams' viewpoint with the Burkean notion that the common people could be trusted to choose their leaders and no more. Madison believed that what political virtue rested in the common people could be found exclusively, quote, in their intelligence to select men of virtue and wisdom to lead them. He insisted on the need to refine and enlarge public views by a chosen body of citizens whose wisdom may best discern the true interest of their country and whose patriotism and love of justice will be least likely to sacrifice it to temporary or partial considerations. Democratic Republicans, and I'm using Republicans with a smaller, and Democrats would be small d, except that it's the beginning of sentence. Uh, <laughs> Democratic Republicans did not dare argue that 18th century citizens were competent to rule themselves. Rather, they rested their hopes on the creation of an educated polity. As the radical Sam Adams argued at the time, and this is the radical position, no people will tamely surrender their liberties, nor can they easily be subdued when knowledge is diffuse and virtue preserved. So that's the position we often identify with Thomas Jefferson, the idea that you can educate a people to be good stewards of their own democracy. Go back now with me to 1922. Walter Lippmann was one of the founding editors of the New Republic magazine, which was founded in 1914. It was a weekly magazine from 1914 until this week. Literally. This week it ceased being a weekly magazine. Every other week, except for the summertime and Christmas and Hanukkah, it was a weekly magazine. 
Now, remember what 1922 looked like in America. It was in between wars. People were really disgusted with World War I. They, isolationism was sort of the rule. People were turned off by politics. We had really inferior leadership at the time. You know, it's the jazz age where people were about having fun and not about having foreign affairs. They blamed World War I on the merchants of death who had sold the weapons and so forth. So it was a very unpromising time to have what I think is the, one of the two great political debates of American history, but that's the way it goes. Founding editor of the New Republic, Lippmann had written two important books in which he addressed central problems of classical republicanism, including the corruption of government by commerce and the potential for creation of a virtuous society by means of its political system, which is what both Madison and Adams were referring to in their way. Coming off the the experience of the dash hopes of the progressive movement, coupled with the disillusionment of the failure of the, of the League of Nations and of the Versailles Agreement, and Libman had been, he had entered the government briefly and was one of the authors of the 14 points that Wilson had brought to Versailles as like a 19-year-old or something. He was a very young man. He was in his early 20s. The young public philosopher began to think about what had gone wrong. The result was a series of three books, the most important of which is Public Opinion, a book that John Dewey would term perhaps the most effective indictment of democracy ever penned. Public opinion may be seen as an eloquent epitaph for Americans' hopes for a progressive democratic reform based on classical Republican principles. In it, Lippmann examined what he believed to be the necessary preconditions for the operation of a successful democratic republic, a competent, civic-minded citizenry with access to relevant details of public policy, and decides the entire notion is dangerously utopian and ought to be shelved. At the heart of Republican theory, in Lippmann's view, stood the omnicompetent citizen. Omnicompetent. Competent in omnidirectional ways. It was believed that if only he could be taught more facts, if he would only take more interest, if he would only listen to more lectures than NPR, <laughs> he would gradually be trained to direct public affairs. Unfortunately, Lippmann concluded, the whole assumption is false. In Republican thought, notes John Patrick Diggins, the historian, the legislative branch was assumed to be sovereign because it best represented the hearts and minds of the people. In Lippmann's analysis, however, sovereignty has shifted to the media, the modern institution that shaped citizens' opinions and hence manufactured their consent for the governing class. But the press, he argues, is much more frail than democratic theory has admitted. It is too frail to carry the burden of popular sovereignty. That's Lippmann. Lippmann argues that the social and political events which determine our collective destiny are well beyond the public range of experience and expertise to understand. Only through incomplete, poorly comprehended media reports are these events made accessible. Public opinion, therefore, is shaped in response to people's maps or images of the world and not the world itself. For the most part, Lippmann wrote, we do not first see and then define, we define first, and then C. Mass political consciousness does not pertain to the factual environment, but to an intermediary pseudo-environment. To complicate matters, this pseudo-environment is further corrupted by the manner in which it is received. Citizens have only limited time and attention to devote to issues of public concern. News is designed for mass consumption, and hence the media must employ a relatively simple vocabulary and linear story to discuss highly complex and decidedly non-linear situations. The competition for readership and advertising dollars drives the press to present news reports in ways that sensationalize and oversimplify 
while more significant information goes unreported and unremarked upon. It's amazing, huh, 1922, don't you think? Given the economic and professional limitations of the practice of journalism, Lippmann argues that news comes to us helter-skelter. This is fine for a baseball box score, a transatlantic flight, or the death of a monarch. There you get back to 1922. But when the picture is more complex, as, for example, in the matter of the success of a policy or the social conditions among a foreign people, where the real answer is neither yes or no, but subtle and a matter of balanced evidence, then journalism, quote, causes no end of derangement, misunderstanding, and misinterpretation. Lippmann's pseudo-environment is not composed merely of the information we receive. It consists in equal measure of what Lippmann terms the pictures in our heads. Voters react to the news in light of a personal history containing certain stereotypes, predispositions, and emotional associations that determine their interpretation of the news. We emphasize that which confirms our original beliefs and disregard or denigrate that which might contradict it. What emerges is a kind of polydimensional censorship. Lippmann compared the average citizen to a deaf spectator, a deaf spectator, sitting in the back row of a sporting event. He does not know what is happening, why it is happening, or what ought to happen. He lives in a world which he cannot see, does not understand, and is unable to direct. Democracy in modern society is surprisingly, therefore, undemocratic. It operates with only a very small percentage of those who are theoretically supposed to govern. In truth, according to Lippmann, only a specialized class of men whose minds can pierce the pseudo-environment can perceive the common interest, which is invisible to the general populace. Since this specialized class acts on information that is not common property in situations that the public at large does not conceive, it is highly questionable to what extent the government is exercising the will of the people. There is no prospect in any time which we conceive that the invisible environment will be so clear to all men that they will spontaneously arrive at sound public opinions on the whole business of government. If there were a prospect, it is extremely doubtful whether many of us would wish to be bothered. Lippmann also explained, as did de Tocqueville, why Madison's hopes that representatives would refine and enlarge the, the views of their districts would also prove false. Thomas Jefferson may have dreamed of a well-informed citizenry of civic-minded, virtuous yeoman farmers, but in the modern era, such optimism was no longer sustainable. The problem was not only that the representatives found it easier to pander, but they also preferred the security of a false picture of the world to the difficult task of attempting to create a more complex and daunting whole. Even if the theory were applied and the districts always sent the wisest men, the sum of a combination of local impression is not a wide enough base for national policy, and it is no base at all for the control of foreign policy. Since the real effects of most laws are subtle and hidden, they cannot be understood by filtering local experiences through local states of mind. The representative needs to know the local pictures, but unless he possesses instruments for calibrating them, one picture is as good as the next. Significantly, notes Diggins, the only American leader in history to profess awareness of this dilemma, Alexander Hamilton, was never elected to public office. Lippmann understands, this is, this is crucial and interesting, even if you don't care about the rest of us. <laughs> Lippmann understands reality to be picturable. Truth can be discovered by matching an independent, objective reality against a language that corresponds to it. That picture, however, is only available to insiders who are prescribed from telling their democratic constituencies the whole truth by penalty of political death. <laughs> no one expects a steelworker, musician, or banker to understand physics, Lippmann believed. Why should they be expected to understand politics? 
In keeping with his platonic inclinations, Lippmann proposed, if not a philosopher king, a philosophically grounded aristocracy. Men do not desire self-government for its own sake, he argued. They desire it for the sake of results. Its degree of self-governance is not the criteria with which one should judge a democracy, but whether it is producing a certain minimum of health, of decent housing, of material necessities, of education, of freedom, of pleasures, of beauty. What is needed, Lippmann argued, is a network of organized intelligence gatherers shielded from the dangers of democratic interference. It is, after all, because men are compelled to act without a reliable picture of the world that governments, schools, newspapers, and churches make such small headway against the more obvious failings of democracy. And you see here Lippmann's responding directly to Madison and the hope that people can choose these people. Lippmann's saying, no, that, even that's too much. The reaction against this specialized class of men was not good, and Lippmann dropped that idea and never came back to it. But he did... This book, Public Opinion, is one of the most influential books ever written. It's the founding document of the entire public relations industry. And Lippmann was very important in strengthening the, the progressive movement's belief at the time that what was needed was better social scientific inquiry and the application of these methods to social problems as opposed to democratic fields. So, you know, you'd go into a neighborhood and you would say what you people really need is to tear down all these houses and put up nice, ugly housing. In other words, the whole sort of Robert Moses method of governance can be read into this quite easily. John Dewey, everybody know who John Dewey is? John Dewey is, he died at age like 109. He's, he's the sort of most important philosopher of liberalism in the United States. Very difficult man to read, actually, so people are always arguing about what he said. Usually now people go to Richard Rorty to ask him what John Dewey was trying to say. He's also the great theorist of education, and I don't know too much about his theories of education except that they are consistent with what I'm about to say about his theories of democracy. He was born in 1869. I believe he was born the year that Origin of Species was published, and he didn't die until 1970-something. Anyway, Dewey replied to Lippmann in the May 3, 1922, New Republic, and later in an important, though incredibly tendentiously written work, The Public and Its Problems, published in 1927. Dewey conceded that voters were not omnicompetent, that is, quote, competent to frame policies, to judge their results, competent to know what is for his own good, and passionately shared his Republican hope that the government could be formed to inspire generosity and civic-mindedness in citizenry. But he disagreed with Lippmann's sanguine trust in the beneficence of elites. A class of experts, he argued, is inevitably so removed from common interests as to become a class with private interests and private knowledge, which in social matters is not knowledge at all. That's a very interesting idea, do you think? This is Dewey's great epigram about democracy. An expert shoemaker may know how best to fix a shoe, but only its wearer knows where it hurts. <laughs> Democracy must begin at home, and its home is the neighborly community, he argued. Unfortunately, Dewey noted, indifference is the evidence of current apathy, and that apathy is testimony to the fact that the public is so bewildered it cannot find itself. Dewey placed enormous emphasis on capitalism and the growth of technology, which he believed to be a double-edged sword for democracy. Invent the printing press and democracy is inevitable, wrote Carlyle. 
Add to this, elaborates Dewey, the railway, the telegraph, mass manufacture and concentration of population in urban centers, and some form of democratic government, humanly speaking, is inevitable. The advent of mass communication creates strong public interest and almost necessitates some kind of popular input in government. The great society created by steam and electricity may be a society, but it is no community. The inexorable advance of technology coupled with capitalist relations of productions created new and impersonal modes of behavior. The mechanical understanding of an individual's role in society, according to Dewey, became the outstanding fact of modern life. While Lippmann argued for what James, uh, the late James W. Carey called a spectator theory of knowledge, Dewey viewed knowledge as a function of communication and association. Systematic inquiry, reified by Lippmann, was to Dewey only the beginning of knowledge. Vision is a spectator, he wrote. Hearing is a participator. The basis of democracy, this Dewey once said, if you think about it, I think it's true. He said, I don't know what I think until I've heard myself say it. The basis of democracy is not information but conversation and the cultivation of what might be called a culture of communication. Democracy required what Dewey termed certain vital habits, the ability to follow an argument, to grasp the point of view of another, to expand the boundaries of understanding, and debate alternative purposes that might be pursued. Habit, he argues, is the mainspring of human action, and habits are formed, for the most part, under the influence of the customs of a group. The media's job in Dewey's conception is to interest the public in the public interest. You're listening to media critic and columnist Eric Alterman. This is Zocalo, a cultural forum for the new L.A. Ever wonder who really runs L.A.? Zocalo Public Square Lecture Series may have an answer at an event moderated by Mariel Garza of the Los Angeles Daily News with political consultant Kermit Maddox, L.A. Weekly reporter Dave Zanheiser, political scientist Jaime Regalado, and Los Angeles magazine writer Jesse Katz. This event on April 10th at 7 p.m. is free, but reservations are required. Please note that the venue has changed to the Los Angeles Central Library. To reserve your seats and to download podcasts, visit ZocaloLA.org. That's Z-O-C-A-L-O-L-A dot org. In a moment, we return to Eric Alterman with Is Democracy in America Even Possible? Stay tuned to Zocalo. Programming on KPCC is supported by Beethoven's Emperor, maybe the greatest piano concerto ever written. AYS, L.A.'s own American Youth Symphony, is one of the nation's most dynamic young orchestras. The Emperor, Andre Watts, AYS, together, Sunday, April 1st at the Dorothy Chandler Pavilion, an evening of brilliant music and youthful energy. For tickets, you can call Ticketmaster at 213-365-3500 or visit aysymphony.org. I'm Pat Morrison. Martin Shaw lives in Germany and spends every vacation in L.A. taking pictures. The things that you drive right past absolutely enthrall him. First, I drove down Sherman Way, then Magnolia, then Olive, and you see something, you stop, you go out, wow, take a picture. Architect, photographer, lover of the City of Angels, Martin Shaw, here Monday, beginning at 2 p.m., Welcome back to Zocalo, a cultural forum for the new L.A. 
We now return to Nation Magazine columnist Eric Alterman speaking on, Is Democracy in America Even Possible? The Lippmann-Dewey debate is simultaneously one of the most edifying and depressing moments in the history of American political discourse. It's edifying because it's one of the only instances where substantive operational questions of effective democratic participation have ever been placed at the center of political debate. Both the originality and the disciplined lines of inquiry of their respective theses command respect and a degree of awe for each writer's amazing prophetic insight, I think. Lippmann's critique of commercially driven sensationalism and Dewey's of the fracturing impact of the public of technological advance demonstrate remarkable foresight and understanding of developments they could not possibly have anticipated. While both writers provide trenchant diagnoses of the maladies affecting American democracy, however, neither came up with a remotely pragmatic prescription. Lippmann abandoned his network of organized intelligence gatherers as unworkable in a democratic context, but never came up with a suitable replacement. Instead, he spent the balance of his career seeking to elevate the character of public discourse by example. His, in other words, Lippmann's answer was Walter Lippmann. Creating a new form of journalism, the insider pundit, who went beyond the box score coverage of the news in the hopes of providing consumers with sufficient context and information to allow them to match the pictures in their heads with the world outside. This effort, while noble in many ways, was fundamentally flawed for the very reasons Dewey predicted. As a member of the governing class, Lippmann ceased to identify with the group he professed to represent and became instead a sophisticated propagandist for the interests of the political elite. Moreover, his example, though widely emulated in professional journalism, is woefully insufficient to inspire the kinds of habits and mores that Dewey correctly identified as necessary for the healthy functioning of democratic culture. But Dewey was hardly more successful himself. His penetrating critique of Lippmann's unapologetically elitist and overly schematic understanding of the role of information in democratic discourse was never fortified by a workable notion of how exactly to inspire the culture of communication necessary to sustain its alternative. Dewey understood its necessity. By what means, he asked, shall the public's incohate and amorphous estate be organized into effective political action and relevant to present social needs and opportunities? How is American society, in the words of the Deweyite philosopher Hilary Putnam, to develop the capacities of all men and women to think for themselves, to participate in design and testing of social policies and judge results? Dewey's inability to formulate a response, however, pointed to a consistent weakness in his work. He rarely bothered to work out the mechanisms through which his reforms might be achieved. The question, therefore, remains exactly how an increasingly urban capitalist society, given all the strains and weaknesses of public discourse that both philosophers identified, does one craft a culture conducive to the creation and sustenance of a body politic made up of the modern-day equivalents of Jefferson's civic-minded yeoman farmers? And this is actually the same question, this great community that Dewey envisions, is the same question that Jürgen Habermas, the uh, German philosopher, speaks of when speaking of creating of the public sphere in which all citizens may confer in an unrestricted fashion about matters of general interest with specific means of transmitting information. The United States has such a system already, to some degree, made up of public and private research institutes, specialized journals, advocacy groups, and individual experts, 
But collective deliberation rarely, if ever, takes place for all the reasons discussed above. The public sphere that the American Revolution helped create, where everybody read Thomas Paine's Common Sense. You know, if Thomas Paine were publishing Common Sense with the population we have today, he would have sold 30 million books, which is pretty good. But that's disappeared. And what do we have to replace it? Well, think about it. Okay, first of all, let's tip our hats to Lippmann and Dewey for this, I think, incredibly prophetic and prescient critique of democracy, all of which is true today, all of which is absolutely true today, of course, though many, many, many things have changed. Now, as far as I can tell, everything has changed for the worse. Absolutely everything. (laughs) Think about the things that, think about the democracy they were describing and the one we have today, or the discourse that they were describing the one we have today. Everybody always points this out. They were writing at a time where there were 12 daily newspapers in New York City, in English. Every single one of them was better than the daily news of the New York Post is today. So the, the level of discourse was higher once you get past the most elitist publications like the New York Times and I'll say the LA Times, but that's only today, I'm saying. <laughs> I'm not as confident about predicting the future as my friends Lippmann and Dewey. But think about the transformation of our discourse, the fundamental transformation. One is obviously the role of money. This country, as far as I know, is the only democracy that remotely allows the power of private money to determine the shape of our politics in the fashion that it does. I mean, the Supreme Court has ruled that money is speech. Money is political speech, and therefore it cannot be regulated any more than speech can be regulated, which is sort of, you can't, you can't light your money on fire in a crowded theater. That's about the only thing you can do. <laughs> now, I don't think I have to explain to this audience all of the, even just take a minute to think about all of the different ways that money determines, misshapes our democracy. But when you think about it, so many of our problems are insoluble without a solution to the problem of money. I mean, if you know anything about, like, sort of that Medicare bill that was passed, which was one of the most egregious violations of democratic process in the history of Congress, I mean, that was about the power of the, of the industries involved, primarily the insurance industry, but also the pharmaceutical industry, or maybe it's the other way around. In any case, just think about the examples that you might have some expertise on it's, it's in many, many ways a democracy of money rather than a democracy of, of votes. You think about our presidential elections. You're a credible candidate if you can raise $50 million for the primary process. You're a credible candidate for senator in New York if you can raise between 30 and $40 million to run for Senate in New York. The votes are the absolute last thing that come up in that process, and that's just the actual voting process. Think about the debate. Think about the way money shapes the debate. How many newspapers, how many NPR stations have a business section or business sections or business shows or business, you know, how many have labor ones? Very few, if any. The New York Times has a labor correspondent, but I think there's probably only two or three in the whole country. When you think about what business is, I'm not an anti-capitalist per se, but there are a lot of externalities to business. There's, there's the people who work for the businesses. There's the environmental impact of those businesses. 
There's the human rights impact of those businesses. There's the social and sociological impact of those businesses, the way they shape communities and people's lives. And none of those things are ever discussed. None of those things are deemed important. In the way that layoffs are covered, in the political pages, not on the business pages, the way that layoffs are covered, the people involved don't matter because these stories are all about money. Now, these are not really great examples of the power of money. I could give you much better ones. But I'm, I'm using these examples because I want to show you that the, our whole way of thinking about money is so powerful that we don't even think about it. I mean, who questions the need for a business section without a labor section? Nobody really thinks about that anymore. Or without an environmental section. But businesses are the primary environmental problem, or certainly one of the businesses and not businesses, but they're, they're just enormous. And yet, to bring them up, it almost brands you a radical. You know? You're a leftist even for thinking that way. When in fact, it's what the fundamental force that shapes our life. So the power of money, the power of these people to protect their investments through the political discourse is absolutely enormous. And I'm talking about in a general way. I'm not talking about my next topic, which is corporations that own the media properties. They have enormous interests as well, as people who read the LA Times are learning. The example I always use on this, it's getting a little old, but it's still kind of powerful. The power of media corporations is the single worst covered story of all stories. I say that. It sounds categorical, but it's, I can back it up. One of the most important bills that affected the lives of almost every American was passed in 1996. It was called the Telecommunications Act of 1996. And it was an enormous fight, really, between the broadcast industry and the cable industry, with different industries lining up on either side. It went on for years. And eventually they got a bill. You know, this was around the time where Robert Dole was actually the good guy for a few minutes. He wanted to charge the broadcast industries to buy the spectrum that was being given to them by Congress. The spectrum was estimated to be worth between 30 and $70 billion. And he wanted to do it for two reasons. One is he, he wanted the Republicans to... Ha- First of all, he thought it was a good idea that they shouldn't get it for free. They were already pretty rich. But he wanted to just... He was going to run for president. He was about to resign as uh, the leader of the Republican Senate. And he wanted to have an accomplishment to speak of. And he thought he could get that... You know, he could be the champion of the public. And, and someone came up to him and said, Dude... You want to run for president, right? And he says, well, yeah, you know, I'm good at the idea. And he says, who do you think is going to be carrying your campaign? (laughs) He said, I guess the broadcast networks. And they said, and you want to make those people pay all this money before you go out there and depend on them to run your campaign? I don't think that's such a good idea. And he says, you're right, it's not such a good idea. And the spectrum was given away. So they were charged absolutely nothing for it. Now... The telecommunications of 1996, it's a very complicated piece of legislation, but basically it it deregulated the radio industry uh, and destroyed local radio. It allowed Clear Channel and and Infinity to take over all the radio communities. So now if you have a natural disaster in your community, you don't have a radio station to call because they're somewhere else. And it deregulated cable rates in most places so that it allowed cable stations to charge whatever they want and to go wherever they want. So you're, whatever you pay for cable, and whether or not you get good cable, if you live somewhere where you don't get cable, 
it falls under this law. So these are important things. Americans tend to watch a lot of television, you know. So these things are very important. And, the, and also radio is an incredibly important <coughs> civic tool in terms of the functioning of democracy, as is television, of course. So Telecommunications Act of 1996, how much coverage did it get on the evening news? Add up all of the hours or days of discussion devoted to the Telecommunications Act 1996 on NBC Evening News, on CBS Evening News, and ABC Evening News during the year and a half it was actually debated. You know what the number is? Zero. The words Telecommunications Act of 1996 were never, ever mentioned on the evening news. There was one nightline during that entire period devoted to it. The only other mention of the Telecommunications Act on television, anybody know? Lisa Simpson. <laughs> I'm serious. Ted Koppel and Lisa Simpson were the only people who ever said the words Telecommunications Act 1996 in prime time. Or not even prime time. Koppel wasn't in prime time. Only Lisa was in prime time. <laughs> so that's a, that's a kind of extreme example, except that everything's gotten even worse since then. You're listening to author and media critic Eric Alterman. This is Zocalo. If you like Zocalo Radio, then check out the Zocalo Public Square Lecture Series. On April 10th, Zocalo will ask, who really runs L.A.? And hopefully get some answers from our distinguished panelists. And then on April 19th, columnists from the L.A. Times editorial pages will join us to discuss California's new February presidential primary and what impact it may have on the race for the White House. As always, these Zocalo live events are free. To make your reservations and to download podcasts, go to ZocaloLA.org. That's Z-O-C-A-L-O-L-A.org. We now return to Eric Alterman with Is Democracy in America Even Possible? So the Tribune Company, you know, really, what do they care if the people of L.A. get the news they need to be good citizens? Where is it in their profit and loss sheet? What's the difference to them? It makes no difference at all. They're not journalists. They don't have these concerns. They wouldn't know Lippmann and Dewey if it bit them on the nose. And, you know, I'm not criticizing for that. It's not their job. When you add this problem to the problem of media concentration, where media concentration, you know, you have six or seven companies controlling 80 to 90% of the information that people get. Green Company is not even one of those companies. It's, it's too small. There are a lot of problems with media concentration, but one of them is that it's not a good idea to tell the truth about anything because you might be getting someone in trouble that your company owns. You can't keep track of what your company owns. And these companies are enormously powerful. So enormous companies get no reporting on them at all. Occasionally, it's fun for one of these companies to report on another company, you know, to say, oh, there's trouble over there. But usually they don't do it because they don't want it to bounce back in them. We have two tabloids in New York. They both are really into gossip, but there's never anything either about Rupert Murdoch in the Daily News or about Warner Zuckerman in the New York Post because they have an agreement between the two of them. You know, they're both. I mean, Murdoch ditched his wife of uh, 40 years and married a woman who hadn't been born yet, you know? <laughs> it's a great story. But you never read about it in the Daily News. So there's that problem that 
that Libman and Dewey didn't know about them. Then you have the problem of this conservative sort of anti-media that has grown up in the past 40 years that is, it's not, you know, I have no problems with having a conservative media. I think there should be a conservative media. But this conservative media, it's not normative. They say, if you bring on the James Hansen, physicist from Goddard Space Center, and he says, I'm the country's leading expert on global warming, and it's happening, Bill O'Reilly will say, shut up, you commie. It's, in other words, the kind of conservatives we have in this country pollute debate rather than encourage debate. And it becomes very, very difficult to have a debate under those contexts. If you watch any of these shows, there's a combination of, of pandering, which Lippmann had, and tabloidism, which Lippmann and Dewey had. But this, this new right wing, which combines all these things together with Anna Nicole Smith and, I don't know, some crazy right wing, you know, the Madrasa story that, about Obama, it becomes impossible to have a debate when you remember how complicated those debates need to be. Global warming, first of all, it took a long time to figure out whether or not it was real. But second of all, what does one do about it? In what ways is it possible to, to change our lives, to reshape our both private and public selves, to, to address it? And how much of it can we live with? These are very difficult questions. And they're not, they're not suitable to the kind of discourse that we have. But if you, if you even allow for their complexity, you've already transgressed the boundaries of what is discussable. You've already opened yourself up to be misinterpreted. I could give you any number of examples of things that are said in president. Remember uh, John Kerry said at one point he would like to get to a point. He was giving a long interview to New York Times Magazine reporter, and he said, I'd like to get to a point where terrorism becomes a, uh, a nuisance the way it used to be. Well, that would be a good world to live in, wouldn't it? Where terrorism did not, we didn't like live in fear. We, we're ne never going to get rid of terrorism problems. You know, terrorism's always been around. You know, they were killing the czar and so forth. And I'm sure they were killing the kings of, of back in Alexandria at times. But that comment still is brought out today to haunt Democratic candidates who don't understand the need for toughness, who don't understand that we think terrorism is just a nuisance. He didn't, he didn't say that. Now, I could give you example after example after example where someone is making a point that is really almost unarguable. But it's so easy to manipulate in the soundbite culture that we have that it becomes impossible to have a sensible discussion. Then there's this whole problem of stupidity. <laughs> we can talk about this. You know, I get nostalgic. When, when I was an intern in Washington, when I was over half my life ago, believe it or not, uh, I sat at the table with all the reporters at hearings, and there was a guy there for the, from the New York Daily News, and he was like this old crusty guy, and he was talking to this young, inexperienced thing, and he was telling me all those stories. And he was covering Congress for the New York Daily News, which was a very important job for them. And I said, so what do you think of the changes going on in the Daily News? And he said, well, my latest suggestion to the editor of the Daily News is that we start a new section for the paper, and we call it News. <laughs> and that was then, you know, that was things, everything's gotten a million times worse since then. I'm going to close because I have to with even before all this horrible stuff that has happened in the past 10 or 12 years, evidenced by Fox News and the, and the growth of the right, 
with the problem in a sort of non-ideological fashion from something written in the 80s by a, a political scientist named Robert Entman in a book called Democracy Without Citizens, which I think updates the Lippmann-Dewey debate quite well, even leaving aside these particular problems that we have that are part of our own, our own uh, sort of craziness. Anyway, here's Entman's restatement of the problem in the 1980s. To become sophisticated citizens, Americans would need high-quality, independent journalism. But news organizations, to stay in business while producing such journalism, would need an audience of sophisticated citizens. <laughs> because most members of the public do not know and care relatively little about government, and I think Lippmann was right about that, they care about results, they neither seek nor understand high-quality political reporting and analysis. With limited demand for first-rate journalism, most news organizations cannot afford to supply it. And because they do not supply it, most Americans have no practical source of the information necessary to become politically sophisticated. Yet it would take an informed and interested citizenry to create enough demand to support top-flight journalism. The nature of both demand and supply cements interdependence and diminishes the press's autonomy. On the demand side, news organizations have to respond to public tastes. They cannot stay in business if they produce a diverse assortment of richly textured ideas and information that nobody sees. To become informed and hold government accountable, the general public needs to obtain news that is comprehensive yet interesting and understandable that conveys facts and outcomes, not cosmetic images and airy promises. But that is not what the public demands. I think that's all true. Now, we're left with a situation, which brings me back to my question at the beginning, which is as follows. Most of what we think of as the business of democracy happens without any of us knowing about it or being aware of it. We're diverted by other things, and they're passing the Telecommunications Act, the Medicare Act, and you don't really know what's in it. I mean, when the tax bill was passed in the first Bush term, $1.9 trillion, with 90% of it going to the top 10%, 52% of Americans did not know that there was a tax bill. Okay. So... On the one hand, the most fundamental things about our democracy happen under sort of the cover of night. Even though they happen in the daytime, they just never reach the people. The second thing that happens is we have these elections, which are largely spectacle and contentless. In, in 2004, in the, if you look at the exit polls, this is the statistic that spooks me out and really scares me about the country more than anything. Why did George Bush win that election to the degree that he won it? It's because he had an 18% advantage over Kerry, 18% in keeping America safe, in security issues, okay? When you add up all the different security issues, terrorism, war, whatever, he, was, he had an 18-point advantage, much, much higher. The values issue was meaningless compared to this. Now, even on election day, even on election day, 49% of Americans said that Iraq had made us less safe, less secure, and 44% said that it had made us more secure. So you had a plurality of 49 to 44% saying that the one thing that the Bush administration did that, that, that Kerry disagreed with most fundamentally, the one thing that they were running on this Iraq war, because basically there was agreement on Afghanistan and other security policies, that people rejected it. And yet these very same people gave him an 18-point advantage on security issues. What the hell is security in that case? Who are these people? <laughs> Now, the answer is, is they're, they're everybody, you know, and yet they're behaving in a, in a profoundly counterintuitive, illogical way. How can you have an election when the very central issue in that election, which was Iraq, 
is one where people say one thing and then vote for the guy who does the exact opposite? Well, it's because the election is all about personalities and slogans and so forth. And Bush was able to say, you may not agree with me, but you know what I think, and therefore you should vote for me. In fact, you didn't know what he think. He was lying. There was this Libby stuff. There, we found out yesterday that North Korea has been totally screwed up. You didn't know what he think. The most, the most effective line he had was a lie. Even the personality part was a lie. So I would say in that election, we had a dysfunctional democracy. Absolutely. The, the, the democracy, the, people's democratic feelings were meaningless when it came to votes. I'd say the same thing happened four years earlier. So is democracy possible? I don't have an answer to that question, but I would say it's not happening. Thank you for listening. So long. You're listening to media critic, author, and columnist Eric Alterman. This is Zocalo, a cultural forum for the new L.A. On April 19th at 7 p.m., Zocalo Public Square Lecture Series and the Los Angeles Times editorial pages present Is California Ready for Its Close-Up? As California catapults its presidential primary from June to February, how will it impact the race for the White House? Times op-ed columnists Ron Brownstein, Rosa Brooks, and Jonah Goldberg join Times editorial writer Rob Green to discuss. This event at Caltech is moderated by Andres Martinez, Times editorial page editor. Zocalo is always free, but reservations are recommended. To reserve your seats and to download podcasts, go to ZocaloLA.org. That's Z-O-C-A-L-O-L-A.org. When we return, the Zocalo audience gets its turn to ask the questions. Stay tuned to Zocalo. You can support 89.3 KPCC by donating your old car. It's quick and easy to do. Just call 877-KPCC-CAR or go to kpcc.org. We'll take care of the rest. Thanks for your support. Welcome back to Zocalo a cultural forum for the new L.A. In this part of his talk, is democracy in America even possible? The Zocalo audience poses questions for Eric Alterman. I know that you're a Nader-hater, yeah, sure. <laughs> like so many others, and I've never heard a real explanation as to why people that do hate him hate him so much, considering the fraud and all of the other reasons that the 2000 election went to Bush. And don't you feel that his voice is necessary to keep the democracy going? Thank you for the good manners. Nader, hater, Nader people, people who ask that question don't usually ask it so nicely. <laughs> I'll give you my truncated answer. I think there's two fundamentally unarguable propositions about Nader's 2000 candidacy. One is he lied. He said, I'm not going into battleground states, and he spent the final weeks in those battleground states, forcing Gore to defend his flank rather than take on Bush in those states. So he lied. He took money from good people who believed him, and he used that money to do exactly what he said he wouldn't do. The second thing, and this is the point that's really unarguable, and this is why I blame Nader for everything terrible in the world. (laughs) Think about it. There was one person on the face of the earth who, on the eve of the election, could have prevented George Bush's election. There was one person the night before the election who could have said, look, everybody, we ran a great campaign. 
We raised all these issues. We showed these corporations we mean business. We'll be back next time. But we, this man is just too dangerous to turn over their greatest nation, the most powerful nation in the world to. There's too many things that can go wrong. This presidency is too powerful an office to be put in the hands of this guy. There is, in fact, a dime's worth of difference between Al Gore and, and George Bush. He could have said that, and he preferred to do what he did. It's because he's a Leninist. It's because he believed that things had to get worse before they could get better. Well, he was sure right about that. <laughs> More, more. <laughs> Can you give any examples, or are there any examples of countries where democracy does work and is possible? And if there are any examples, how do those countries differ from ours? One of the most moving things I've ever seen in my life was I got a ticket to be on the floor of the Capitol uh, when Vaclav Havel uh, spoke to a joint session of Congress shortly after he became president of Czechoslovakia, and he described democracy as a horizon that we try to approach, that but we never reach. And he said a little generously that the United States was further down that path on that horizon than his country, which I guess was true at the time. There's no such thing as a functioning democracy. Democracy is, is a way of thinking about organization of human affairs, but you can't have a perfectly functioning democracy. You can have forms of government that allow people to get much more of what they desire from their government than, or, or less. And I would say that almost all of the proportional representation schemes, modified proportional, wouldn't have strict but almost all of them that they use in Western Europe and in Israel, particularly Germany has one of the best ones, people are able to, you know, it's a combination of Lippmann and Dewey. In most of these places, People choose their representatives and then let their representatives run the government. But in those countries, the, the parties that run for office actually represent a coherent set of alternatives, philosophical, ideological, and pragmatic. And so when you vote for a government in Germany, in France, even in Italy, which has a screwy government because of the, the too much proportional representation, you're voting for something real, and you're going to get it. And if you don't get it, and it was the party discipline and the fact that parties represent something and that the debates are held on the basis of policy rather than personality presents a much more coherent form of democracy, in my view. And I think it's very interesting that in all of these countries, tax rates are much higher than they are in the United States, and yet satisfaction with government is also much higher. You get, you get a lot more from your government for your taxes, and people don't mind paying taxes because their governments are considerably less dysfunctional than ours. A Telecom Act question. Is it, in a sense, good that the airwaves were not sold so that they could not be said to be owned now by those huge... No, they, are, they were given away. They, it's not that they weren't sold. It's they They're were not given the public away. public air, airwaves? They were just given away. They owned them. They just didn't have to pay a thing for them. By the way, there's a sequel to that story. Remember that great public funding law that John McCain and Russ Feingold passed, which surprised me that they passed anything, actually. I, I was very cynical about that. But they did pass it, right? There were four components to that bill. Only one of them didn't pass. You never hear about this. The part that didn't pass, that they couldn't pass, that McCain and Feingold couldn't pass, even though they could pass the rest. They couldn't pass the part that instructed television broadcast stations to sell airtime 
to candidates at their lowest rates, which is a, really the single biggest problem we have in our finance system because they make so much money on them that candidates spend all their time raising money to buy television time. So if you force them to sell them at their lowest rates, they could devote a lot more time and effort to people who don't have money. You know? But that part of the law was defeated. The broadcasters were the only people strong enough to defeat their law, to defeat that law, and nobody wrote about it because it's the most single most undercovered issue in Republic. With a few notable exceptions, obviously, we've, we've come to expect from the mainstream media a uh, false dichotomies and he said, she said type of reporting. But uh, one of the most discouraging things that I ever heard was uh, Jim Lehrer basically saying in a, in a uh, recent interview that his job was to report both sides of the issue and let people decide for yeah. themselves. And I wonder if you could explain to me how it is that even somebody as uh, estimable as, and smart as he is has drank the Kool-Aid. Well, first of all, you don't know how smart he is. <laughs> None of us do. Something's happened in our country, in our, in our media, where it's impolite, it's, it's unacceptably impolite for an interviewer to disagree with the premise of what the person's saying. Like, they can, you can lie to an interviewer, and as Lehrer says, it's not his job to say, but wait a minute, aren't you lying? The only place you'll ever see it is on Jon Stewart. It's true. It's true. When Cheney said that he never said the words that it's a confirmed fact, pretty, pretty well confirmed that this meeting in Prague happened, which never happened, and it was on Meet the Press where he had said it, and he says, I never said that. The only place you saw him saying it was on The Daily Show. Nobody else had the nerve to even run it when Cheney wasn't there when he couldn't like, glare at Wolf Blitzer and scare <laughs> If you remember this, go home tonight and Google the words Rumsfeld and the words Dimbleby, okay? Jonathan Dimbleby was a reporter for the BBC. Perhaps he still is. I haven't followed his career. But he interviewed Rumsfeld before the war, okay? Rumsfeld agreed to an interview with the BBC, and he was the interviewer. And he's asking Rumsfeld's question, and Rumsfeld's giving the same BS that he gives everyone in America, and the guy just won't accept it. He says... What do you mean by that? That's not true. You're, you're just making that up. And, and Rumsfeld comes back with some other thing. Oh, they're really scary. They're really bad. He goes, yeah, but why this when you say this? And, and, and Rumsfeld flips out. He says, what are you doing? <laughs> what business are you in where you consistently return to the same question just because you won't accept the third level of BS that I've offered? <laughs> and it's true, there isn't any... American newsman or woman that would ever um, imagine doing that. They might ask a question a second time, and that would be it. You get to lie. If you're willing to lie twice, you're done. <laughs> so I, I, you know, I think it's terrible, but it's just it's considered partisan. I was wondering. Actually, you kind of started to reference my question by mentioning googling something. You've talked about radio and you've talked about television, and I was wondering where you see the internet fitting mm. into this, because obviously a lot of people are using it as sort of one of the few yeah. free mediums available to us now. Well, the internet is Dewey, you know? The internet is a culture of communication and conversation that is outside of the realm of the experts. You can have experts. There certainly are experts on the internet, but there's no real gatekeeper function. Now, I actually am not, you know, I like Dewey, but I think Lippmann had a lot to say also. I have been lately setting myself up for attack 
by defending the gatekeeper function on the net. I think we need gatekeepers. I think even the people in this room are too busy to figure out who to trust about every complicated issue. I think even the people in this room need help deciding, need help from people who do this for a living to decide which arguments are important and who they can trust in the context of those arguments. So the Internet is a wonderful way, A, for people to talk in the context of a democratic conversation. And B, it's turned out to be a wonderful way to hold these powers accountable for defending their versions of the truth before they could get away with anything. Now they have to answer to the Internet if they print stuff that's obviously testably false. But it creates this problem of false information not being corrected, of false information living, and like the Japanese movie monsters that, that just get stronger and stronger when you try to kill them. <laughs> and so it's a mixed blessing, but by and large a blessing. The thing I love about the Internet, to tell you the truth, is that it makes people feel that they're not alone. And I think that's tremendously important. You can't, you can't win these battles by yourself. But if you find your community of people, you can really make a difference. And, and the Internet has fantastic potential for that. We saw that in the Dean campaign, and I think you know, we'll see it again. You've been listening to author, media critic, and columnist Eric Alterman on Zocalo. We spoke with Zocalo audience members after Alterman's talk on Is Democracy in America Even Possible? And this is what they had to say. It was great. This guy's very intelligent. He's got it going on. And he nailed it. Although he talked about the media being problematic when he brought up the BBC, he never even mentioned that it was a public station, like a government-owned station. He uh, told people a lot of things that made sense, but were also very disconcerting because they made so much sense. I thought it was excellent. I thought he was stimulating, interesting, informed, somewhat partisan, but that's what we would expect. I think his talking about proportional representation in Europe as a preferable way to go is highly questionable. I think that you have the same personalities and the same media-driven situation are there. Expect a little bit more regarding the uh, topic. Is there really an opportunity for democracy in America? Oh, I thought it was uh, wonderful, very informative, and what a speaker he was. You've been listening to author and media critic Eric Alterman. This is Zocalo, a cultural forum for the new L.A. Zocalo's radio broadcast is sponsored by 89.3 KPCC. Zocalo Radio is supported by a generous grant from the James Irvine Foundation and by the California Endowment. For information on upcoming Zocalo events and to download past radio programs, visit ZocaloLA.org. That's Z-O-C-A-L-O-L-A dot org. The producer for Zocalo Radio is Peter Stencil. Douglas Gary is our engineer. I'm Marcos Fromer. Thanks for listening. Support for this public radio podcast comes from the University of Chicago Graduate School of Business with a network of 40,000 alumni worldwide on the web at chicagogsb.edu.